Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First, Michael Schneider. Hey, Michael. Hey, Nick. How's it going? Good. We're with Michael Schneider, the founder of Streets for All, which created the Healthy Streets LA initiative to put the... Los Angeles mobility plan into effect, finally, to force the city council to implement the plan that it agreed to, which they showed no signs of doing on their own. They voted Wednesday. They seemed to praise healthy streets before unanimously voting against it. The concern they cited was equity. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Less affluent neighborhoods would not be prioritized if healthy streets were approved, the infrastructure would be automatically installed every time a street is repaved. Is that on healthy streets that it wouldn't prioritize lower income neighborhoods? Or is that on the repaving schedule? It's on the repaving schedule. Healthy Streets LA is so simple. It says if the city repaves a street, they have to implement the mobility plan elements that were contemplated for that street. Could be a bike lane, could be a bus lane, could be traffic calming features on residential streets, could be a crosswalk. We too want the mobility plan to be implemented equitably, but Healthy Streets LA is keying off of the repaving schedule. If we want to have a conversation about how to make the repaving schedule more equitable, we're all for it. If the city wanted to create a separate fund, for example, separate from the normal repaving fund, and all of that money would just go to disinvested and underinvested communities, we would be all for it. We're for starting with the high injury network. We support the local hire program. We support community outreach. There, at the end of the day, there really was no conflict between making needed equity-based changes to the repaving schedule and to adopting Healthy Streets LA. Unfortunately, it was framed that way, but it was not in conflict. So it just reminds me of all the times when drivers have opposed street calming using all these arguments about and you know environmental concerns or disability access, things that you think maybe aren't really the reason to oppose the measure. I mean, the city council may not want to do this for the reason that it constrains their power. I think that is a big factor from the conversations I had with council members. I was in city hall for about seven hours on Tuesday, the day before the vote, just shuttling back and forth between council offices. And I heard from not just one, but multiple council members that one of the reasons why they were uncomfortable with adoption is they were hesitant about giving up control and that maybe they don't want the mobility plan on every street in their district that's envisioned for during repaving. And I said till I was blue in the face, well, that, that flexibility that you're asking for, that, that control that you want is the entire reason why we have the city that we have. And unless we get rid of individual council member prerogative, we are never going to have a holistic connected network in Los Angeles because there will always be council members that are better at this stuff and aggressive with it and want it and push it forward. And there will also be council members that are more regressive and hesitant and block projects. And that is the reality. And so I do think it's about giving up control. Um, I also think that this thing that the equity orgs say that it has to be all in one package. 
And there's no other way except it, it has to be combined, like the council president is trying to do, um, is also a red herring. We, we can have equitable reforms through a paving schedule and mobility plan implementation, and separately require that the city implement it when they repave. And again, the two are not in conflict. What's happened is they've gotten conflated. And so the equity orgs are convinced that if Healthy Streets LA had just been adopted, that we wouldn't be solving all of these historic inequities in the city. And the council president seems convinced of that too. I believe the council president's sincere in wanting to find a solution here. And I applaud her leading on this. But at the same time, the reality is that implementing the mobility plan when we're paving is the simplest possible action we could do. It would start saving lives today because the planning would start today. I mean, I, I was so frustrated. I spent last Friday talking to some people at council and going through the list, the spreadsheet that Streets for All created of all the repavings that are coming up this fiscal year. We're two months into the fiscal year 22-23. It started July 1st, so 10 months left. And I was being asked to pick out projects that I thought were especially critical to maybe see if the city could do them. So we're really, for the moment, back to square one, begging the city to follow its own plan. There are key, key quarters on there. Uh, Central Avenue, Sherman Way in the Valley, Venice Boulevard, Melrose, that have mobility plan treatment that as of right now are scheduled to be repaved and the mobility plan ignored. And so if the city wanted to show good faith, they could voluntarily decide to implement these mobility plan corridors while we are figuring out what comes next. Is it the city council uh, ordinance that comes next? Is it us negotiating with council for something everyone's happy with and sending that to the 2024 ballot? Or is it Healthy Streets LA in March 2024? Regardless of whatever comes next, there's a void right now and the city could show good faith by changing course. But I have not seen any indication they're going to do that. At least in 2024, it'll be on the ballot? It will be on the March 2024 ballot. And your polling shows it's strong, polling, right? Polling shows it will pass with flying colors. Well, don't get discouraged. Keep it up. Yeah, I would say the same thing to you and to all the other advocates that were so disappointed as we were last Wednesday. We may have not gotten what we wanted last Wednesday, but we've really elevated the conversation here. We have the city council talking about how they failed to keep people safe on the streets and how they need to do better. That conversation would not have happened had Healthy Streets LA not happened. So it's great we're talking about it, but now we're laser focused on concrete action. What can the city do between now and March 2024? And then once Healthy Streets LA passes, they will have to do it. And so we're focused on the next year and a half and building our campaign, building support, and um, looking forward to it. Thanks, Michael. Streets for all. Today, the new participant in Friday's critical mass ride in Chicago, Illinois State Representative and candidate for Chicago Mayor, Cam Buckner, along with Chicago critical mass ride leader, Juan Dominguez. Juan? Yes. I'd like to introduce you to Representative Cam Buckner. Oh, hello. Hi, Cam. Hey, Juan. How you doing today, brother? Oh, all right. Thanks for joining the ride last night. Absolutely. I have fun. Kim, is this a regular thing for you? Was it your first time? It's my first time in a long time. It wasn't my maiden voyage, but uh, it's been a while since I've, I've been able to join. Uh, I was able to uh, visually see the, the July uh, gathering as I was at a meeting downtown. And I was like, you know what? This looks like so much fun. I got to make sure that I'm, I'm with them next month. And so got that opportunity yesterday and I had a great time. And you're running for mayor. I am. I am running for mayor of Chicago. 
Uh, I'm a Chicago kid, born and raised here. What's important for me is, is as we decide who we want to be as a city moving forward, that all voices have a chance to, to be heard and that we build an equitable city that's accountable to the people that live here. All right. Excellent. And critical mass might fit the spirit of equitable voices wanting to be heard. You, you all want to talk about how it fits into that kind of a vision for our streets, maybe? I'll say this, Nick. It's important to me as I meet people around Chicago that really just want this city to to work in a way where where people focus and people centric. Um, for way too often, our institutions and our systems have been built around dollars and not necessarily people, profits and not people. Um, we got to make sense. Uh, we got to find a way to, to to use the things that we've learned through the, through the pandemic um, to create a, once again a safe city for all of us. Whether you're biking or walking, um, whether you live in Austin or Avondale, uh, whether you are able-bodied or not, right? Uh, and so to me, it's important to be able to, to bring the city together. And critical mass is really a, um, a tremendous opportunity to, to see people from around the city um, who may come from different economic backgrounds or different social socioeconomic backgrounds and different demographics, uh, but who really just, uh, you know, want to be able to move freely around their city and uh, team up with, with other folks who find that mobility important. And so uh, it's a it's a real important tenant to the work that we have to do in this, in this city. Thank you. Yeah, Juan, I kind of put you on the spot here because yes. critical mass doesn't have a spokesperson. I was referred to you by the Chicago critical mass, the person who has the Twitter account, but yeah. maybe you could just talk to me about the ride. Um, well, it happens every month gathering at daily plaza around five 30. I've been doing this for more than 10 years actually. And I've been starting to lead it for about two years and um, the last couple months uh, have been quite large, uh, amazingly enough. And it's something that I, I was not really prepared to handle, like leading much larger groups. So I took a break this month and I had uh, somebody else lead it. Actually, they stepped up and, and, and led the, the ride. They made their own uh, map. And most of the time, you know, people will make a map to a destination. And that's what makes the ride fun is that you're going through the city and enjoying different parts of the city um, to get a, a, an overview of different neighborhoods and and the people living in there and and just the expressions on some of the people's faces seeing like large groups of people rolling by is, is probably just the plus side of the whole thing and planning. Representative Buckner, you saw it from the outside then in July. I did. Um, as I was you know, walking down the street, I, I saw the critical mass go by and um, it looked like so much fun. And listen, in, in a world, in a city, in a time, in a place where there's so much heaviness on our plate right now, uh, so much to think about from a a local uh, standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, to look at the people across the city who are hurting, to be able to look at a group of folks who are you know, really just trying to package some joy together. And, and as Juan said, visit communities and neighborhoods and smile and wave at people as they go through the streets. Um, it, it really, to me, is indicative of what the city really is and what it looks like uh, and how people take care and look out for each other. So it's exciting to watch it. And I think it's it, it's uh, it can be very symbolic on how we should move forward together as a city. Yeah. And so one, you've got a representative from the state of Illinois on the ride. I'm assuming it hasn't always been like that. No, it hasn't. It's only just been like grassroots, um, local bike community people that you get to know uh, just by going there every month. And that's how I started. I just was just the guy enjoying the ride. And then eventually 
you know, I got to know more people and um, actually um, being asked to help with leading the ride. And now I'm just like full on just leading the ride. Um, it just builds from there. Uh, it, it's a it's a very complicated thing too in the community because there's always people arguing with each other about how to do things and stuff. But um, we've managed. You know anything about that, Cam? Uh, leading a community with people who are arguing about how to do things. <laughs> Listen, I represent uh, the most diverse district in the state of Illinois. Uh, for those people who know Chicago, I have communities like uh, South Shore and South Chicago. Washington Park, Woodline, Greater Grand Crossing, Hyde Park in Kenwood, Bronzeville, the South Loop, Downtown, River North, Streeterville, and the Gold Coast. So there's a lot of differing folks in that space. There's a lot of distinction in that space. Uh, and I also am the chair of the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus in Springfield. Where, uh, in the House, we have 22 members from all around the state, places like Peoria and Rockford uh, and Waukegan and obviously Chicago. Uh, and so I know a little bit about trying to bring folks together, but even when there is dissension, there's always a way to find unity. And I saw that on my ride. Uh, and I've seen that uh, as I talked to my friends in the bike community. Juan, it's got this reputation as being kind of leaderless. So how do you lead a leaderless ride? <laughs> oh, gosh. When I have been leading the ride, I am uh, kind of directing people like saying, hey, we need to go this way, you know, because I made the map. So, you know, then people will follow and... And then sometimes the other people will step up and like take the front and the block intersection so that the rest of the, the ride will go through. Uh, we call that corking. So it helps, you know, to ease the, the ride along. And um, it's like we, we work like ants almost in a, in a sort of strange sort of way, building bridges across streets with bicycles and people just getting along. The form of critical mass, if you could say it has a message or a purpose, the, the way it's structured is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just pretty free form. And then the other kind of message that critical mass has is that streets are for people on bikes as much as for people in cars, which is, you know, it has been not a mainstream message. Something like that. Yeah. Similar. Um, there's people that have been on skateboards and uh, people on personal uh, electric vehicles like the the segways and stuff um they have a space there too and we all kind of share the same kind of um vulnerabilities to to being in traffic with the automobiles so i would say that that's pretty much how i i view it there's been sort of a not always completely law-abiding like you mentioned corking. I mean, that's not exactly in line with how you're supposed to behave, right? No, I think that that's a good way to behave for a critical mass ride is to cork intersections so that the rest of the group can get through. But the things that I, I don't like is um, the damaging of vehicles that would happen every now and then with the rides or, or drivers being aggressive and damaging bicycles. So there's always that that aspect to the ride. When you have a certain critical mass of people, new rules take hold. You know, you have to look out for the safety of large numbers of people. Then you need to do things like stop traffic. I mean, that's just sort of new rules take place. What do you think about that, Representative Buckner? Yeah, I mean, listen, I think some of these things are customary just based on what the proper thing to do from a safety protocol standpoint is. And, and it's about um, the necessity that, that comes with making sure that people are safe. Um, but I, you know, I'll say to your point earlier, uh, 
the the ethos of, of this movement to me is that uh, the streets belong to all of us, like the city belongs to all of us, right? And so there's some responsibility and some obligation there. Uh, there's also some, some accountability uh, there as well, but uh, it's about reminding people, as I've said, the city that works needs to work for everybody. And that's including folks who are pedestrians, that's including folks who are bikers, that's including all of us as we find a way to get along and to integrate in, in all sectors of, of our day-to-day life. Do you think there's a bike lobby, Representative Buckner? You know, I, I don't know if you would call it that um, specifically, but what I have absolutely seen um, is there are folks who are extremely passionate and who are advocates for making sure that our streets are safe for everybody on any, any mode of transportation. Uh, and listen, uh, there is absolutely a, a, a transportation lobby. And so I guess a, a sector or a portion of that is folks who have really embraced the idea of active transportation and what that looks like. And so uh, there is definitely a, a voice that, that people are hearing. Myself as a legislator and, and folks who I work with uh, are listening to their voice and we need to make sure that it happens. I hear the son. <laughs> yes, he, uh, he, he's saying hello. <laughs> One, will you be leading more rides? Uh, I'm going to try. All right. Most definitely, yeah. Representative Buckner, will you be participating in more rides? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to to the next time I can get out and join other groups. Obviously, I am not normally a a winter cyclist, but um, as long as the weather is holding up, uh, I I plan to be at more. Cool. And one, any questions for Representative Buckner while we have him on the line? Uh, No questions. Um, I'm just really excited that you're going to be running for, for mayor. I'm definitely going to be voting for you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. We say there's a bike lobby. It's the all-powerful bike lobby, and we're yeah. we're sort of kidding, but um, <laughs> sounds like you're running for for the bike lobby vote. Uh, Listen, I think I, you may have it so far. I've been looking out there my my radar. I was like, wait, no, I can't vote for this person. No, they don't know anything about bikes or even ridden in a critical mass of all things. Listen, it is, no, it's my pleasure to be able to, to elevate some of these conversations as well. I grew up as a kid riding my bike all around this city. My, my father, um, you know, we grew up on the far south side, but my father worked at 26 and Cal at the jail, and he would ride from our house on 103rd Street to work every single day. Um, and the older, when I got older, I could he let me ride with him when I would go to work with, work with him on some days. And so it's the way I got to learn the city, and it's the way I got to love the city by seeing it from a bike. It's really a full circle moment for me to be able to now be a legislator who can help effectuate some policy uh, in that space, but also now to be running for um, mayor of the city that I grew up in and that I love, uh, to be able to make sure that once again, our streets are safe and equitable and accessible to all people, uh, no matter what mode of transportation you may choose. And so I'm, I'm just really honored by that. All right, right on. Thank you both, Representative Buckner and Juan Dominguez. See you around. See you around, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to Bike Talk with Illinois State Representative for the 26th District and Chicago mayoral candidate Cam Buckner and Juan Dominguez on Chicago's Critical Mass Ride. Next, Bike East Bay Advocacy Director Dave Campbell and Stacy Randecker on Bike East Bay's pop-up bike lanes in San Leandro, California. We have Dave Campbell, who's Bike East Bay's Advocacy Director, and Stacy Randecker, who stops traffic in San Francisco. <laughs> I guess I do. <laughs> I wanted you to talk because Stacy expressed a lot of frustration about the pace of implementing bike infrastructure in your city. You've also said you appreciate the work of Bike East Bay. And, yes. In fact, and- the latest one was outstanding. 
in San Leandro. It's so impressive. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to Dave about. Your pop-up yeah, lane in San Leandro. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work and successful too. We'll know just how successful one way or the other in a couple of months, hopefully when the city council gets to weigh in on what are we going to do about safety on these two streets? But yeah, we went big last Saturday in San Leandro. Can you describe the scope of the project? I just saw a bunch of regular bike people and Kermit green paint and the bike stencil out on the street and heard schools and that's it. But it was enough that got my heart racing. (laughs) Yeah. So San Leandro, for the listeners who don't know, it's the next city to the southeast of Oakland, California. And it's about about 100,000 people. So pretty good size, mid-sized city. And they did a bike plan in 2019, a bike ped plan, and identified two streets as their highest priority streets to make safe for bicycling. One is Bancroft, which goes north-south through the city the whole way, and William Street, which goes east-west almost the whole way, maybe about two-thirds of the city. And they wanted to get to work on these two streets, so they brought on a consulting firm to do some design work, community outreach, come up with some concepts, evaluate existing conditions as consultants will do. And Bikey Spay was brought on as a sub-consultant, something we don't often do, but we do sometimes, but specifically to do pop-up bikeways as part of the phase two of the community outreach for the project. So last year, lots of community outreach and discussion of issues and concepts to address those issues. This year, project has identified a preferred design, a two-way cycle track on the side of each street where most of the schools are located on that side of each street. And this August, we're gonna do two pop-ups originally, one on each street, one on William Street and one on Bancroft. And because Bancroft is such a long street north-south, the city asked, could we do a second one on Bancroft for a total of three? And give us a quote for doing that. And so we did that working with the consultants. And I think it was the consultants that had the idea, let's do them all on the same day and really make it a demo day in San Leandro and get more publicity and more people out for that. And that worked. We did get more people out and got more publicity because of that. It was more work, though, because one challenge is before we were going to set up a pop-up bikeway on one street and then use the materials later to set up a pop-up bikeway on the second street. Now we needed to create three sets of materials to be deployed all at the same time. So a lot more prep work, even more than we planned for or anticipated. It was a lot of work. And would we do it again? Yes, but we had some initial hesitations the day after if we would do it again or not. But I think we're ready to do it again. But it was ambitious, doing three in a day. Each one was about a block long. The Toyon Park one was two blocks long. The one on William Street was a block and Victoria Court was a block. So a total of about four blocks of a two-way cycle track. And we had about 40 volunteers and staff and interns helping us set this up. And we set it up the day before. So we went out Friday afternoon and striped just the bikeway portion of the pop-ups that were located where there's currently on-street parking We didn't go out into the travel lanes at all on Friday. And so we set up the bikeway on each of the three locations, got those done by the end of the day Friday. And then Saturday morning, we finished the pop-up on William Street. We actually jogged 
the travel lane so we could create a parking protected cycle track to simulate school drop-off opportunities on that side of the street. And so that jog of the street, we did Saturday morning first thing by closing down the street, getting it restriped with blackout for what's there. And then we finished all the crosswalks. We put in new high visibility crosswalks for all three locations. And we did that Saturday morning and had it all done. Roughly our goal was 10 a.m. to get these things operational. Two of the three were operational by 10 a.m. The other one was operational by about 10.15 a.m. Kept them going till 2 p.m., a little bit after 2 p.m. Then got them all taken down and the streets were back the way they were by 4 p.m. Saturday and our cycle tracks were gone. Wait, 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 wait. The cycle tracks were gone. I thought they were paint. No. For keeps. These were pop-ups. So these were one-day demonstrations to be taken down at the end of the day. And we'd used paint, but we only used paint to paint the roofing paper that we used to create the Kermit Green bikeway pieces that you saw in the skip green striping at the driveways. We painted all that and the crosswalks, we painted those white to simulate a ladder crosswalk. And all that painting effort we did two weeks before on a couple of paint days at the courtyard to get those prepped. And then we used the roofing paper and duct tape to put down the bikeway and to cover up with just blank black roofing paper, the things we didn't want. And we used traffic tape, traditional legitimate traffic tape that cities use when they temporarily restripe a street for a construction zone, for example. We used that to stripe the white and the yellow lines that you see in the photos and in the videos. And then we bought pretty cheap stanchions that a city could use for a construction zone and some cities use for protected bike lanes, the kind that don't last very long because they get hit. We bought those, so they're like 25 bucks a piece and put those up. We used real materials or at least materials that look real because we wanted it to look real. We wanted it to look like kind of how it would look if it were a permanent installation. And we did get some feedback from some residents who were a little bit concerned because it looked so good. They thought it was permanent. And they'd missed out on the decision-making process. And we had to reassure them, no, this is actually part of the decision-making process. So we welcome your feedback. So people can't see my face melting right now because we're talking about ways for children to get to school safely without a car. And we do not have the courage to make that permanent. We did this on paper and neighbors strolled by and said, oh, this looks like it might be permanent. And I did not have a chance to weigh in on input. Mm -hmm. So Dave is a marathoner here. He does these things. He wears down the opposition through politeness and listening. And oh. do I have that right, Dave? Uh, I hear where you're going with that. A lot of these projects take a long time, but Stacy, the demonstration project also can accelerate the process and do, they really do, because projects that are contentious, which is often where you do these demonstration projects to show what they are and to test various concerns and issues people have like parking loss or congestion or traffic diversion or backing out of driveways, all sorts of concerns people have about streets. You can test them and get feedback that's more useful and get it in a day or in a week if you keep these things up for a few days. And so now we expect to go to San Leandro City Council this fall for a final decision on the street. And if we didn't do the pop-ups, if we didn't show that, I don't think we would be able to go to City Council in the fall. 
but that's just to approve the design. So I hear you. The city's going to have to go out and get grants to build these. And two years at the earliest is probably what the city's looking at to build something permanent. So it doesn't happen as quickly as I know you would like, or I would like, or a lot of us would like to happen, but it does accelerate the process. Yeah. A lot of people see this and think it's like a real tactical urbanism or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nicer you make it look, maybe the less gorilla it looks and more official. That was our goal. I've volunteered with and done many other pop-ups, probably 10 plus now. And some look very organic, like volunteers did this and it was done quickly in a day and it showed the concept and often is successful. Three of our pop-ups that we've done, one on Telegraph, Milvia and Hearst here in the Oakland area have now all been converted into permanent protected bikeways and much safer streets, some with posts, some with concrete now. So it does help make these projects happen, make them happen sooner, but it really helps also refine the project. You can do something quick and you're not going to get it as right if you take more time and get more feedback. And so for these pop-ups that we did in San Leandro, we were learning things, one, about parking lots. We know if you replace parking with a cycle track, you're going to lose parking. That wasn't a discovery for anybody. But what does that parking change or parking loss? What is the impact on people? And what impact does that have when that parking is used for school drop-off in the morning and then becomes parking later on? That we can start to better understand with a pop-up. And so lots of residents came out and shared with us their concerns about parking. And we got to have a conversation with them. And it ranged from, I have an elderly person in my home who needs to park their car right next to the curb in order to get in and out to go somewhere. Super helpful. To, I own three cars and I like to park them on the street and you're in my way. And everything in between. And so that you don't always get from a survey or an online opportunity to provide input on a map, that type of input you get from having those conversations on the street. And similarly with backing out of driveways, we learned a lot about residents who live on the street, came by the pop-ups and said, yeah, I like this. I bike. I have kids. I would love to bike with them. This is good. But how do I back out of my driveway? What can we do to keep that safe or make it safer? And we hadn't thought as much about that going into the pop-ups. And I think that's one lesson we learned was we might have considered putting one pop-up at a more residential location where there was a driveway so that that resident could actually back out of their driveway across the cycle track. I have a suggestion feedback. for that, which is to back mm -hmm. in your driveway. And then you're always pulling out. I mean, I really want to use an expletive and something about cars, but I will offer that as a constructive suggestion. Yeah, you've so heard these that. are solvable problems. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we also heard from residents who said, when I make a left into my driveway, not backing in, but forward in, without the center turn lane on the street, which would be removed on some stretches for the cycle track, it's going to be harder. And so we talked through, well, is it possible for you to always approach your house from the south so you're only making a right into your driveway? Could you do that? And some people are like, yeah, actually, I could do that more often. It's not that difficult because of the way the street grid sets up in the city. Others are like, I just don't want to do that. And we're just getting that kind of realistic, useful feedback. And how many people can do that and how many people just don't want to do that? That's what we need to know. I just am struggling. I mean, we're here in California. We are blessed with a temperate climate all year round. San Leandro, I believe, is quite flat. 
So we should be able to bike all the time. This isn't 110 in Texas. This isn't four feet of snow in Minneapolis. We never get rain anymore <laughs> weather. We can bike pretty much every day. And we are taking people's comments about their parking, they're entering their driveways and whatever. And we're using that over top of kids biking to school safely. Like to me, that's somewhat unconscionable. Like when you stack up who should have priority here. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel any of that at all? Or are you like, no, people need to drive and we need to accommodate that. Maybe I should say I feel it less, but I understand that because I hear it a lot. I hear it a lot. And the East Bay ranges from very progressive neighborhoods to very conservative neighborhoods. And San Leandro is probably right in between. And is it a city that's ready to give up their cars, walk, bike, and take transit? Absolutely not. Is it a city that only wants to drive and has no concerns for walking and biking or transit or not wanting to do it? Absolutely not either. We think it's ready to start getting serious about walking and biking and improving transit service, but it's sort of starting to lean that way. And we think we have a supportive city council, supportive enough to start doing some things, but blanket removing parking from a street for bikeways is super contentious. It's still super contentious in Berkeley, for example, and it's definitely going to be contentious in San Leandro. But Stacey, I was super encouraged because we had, for example, motorists would drive by roll down their window and say things like, yes, thank you. We need this. They saw the pop-up cycle track and all the bright colors. And they're like, yes, this is so needed in my city. And we got lots of drivers who just paused, rolled down the window and said that to us. At one of the pop-ups, the local business owner, she came out and she was like, thank you for doing this. Right in front of my business is great. We need more people walking and biking. And she's got a neighborhood serving business, so she gets it. And at the same time, we had parents who lived near the park where we put up another pop-up and they bike and they want to bike with their kids, but they're like, yeah, we're only going to bike through the neighborhood. I'm not going to have kids biking out on this street. And so there we had to have a more nuanced conversation of, well, what could we do to this cycle track that we've designed here that would make you feel more comfortable biking with your kids? And I think after having some time to have that conversation, they were like, okay, I think I would be comfortable if you did this and I would bike with my kids, but leaving my kids to go to school on their own, I don't think I would ever do that on this street. And, you know, parents with kids, they're the expert. You can't really challenge their judgment on keeping their kids safe. It's, their judgment is, is everything. We just try to work to improve the designs. Yeah, I'm a parent myself. I live in San Francisco. I have two teenagers. My daughter will bike with me under duress. My son, he's just risk averse and he will likely never bike in this city because it's simply not safe enough for him to feel comfortable. And I guess the thing for me is it's wonderful to hear about the positive response from the shopkeepers and some of the motorists. But is there any thought to asking the larger question to parents and community members and whatever, which is... What would it take for you to do this? There will be some people who will say, not me, never, I'm a drivist. But asking family, schools, and regular people, what would it take for you to be able to bike through your town? The city of San Leandro is trying to do that with this process, with their bike plan, with their other you know, planning efforts, general plan, climate action plan, their housing element. 
And the thinking is, let's get one good, safe street for biking north-south and one east-west. Let's start there. And that's what this process is versus let's just create a whole network of bikeways throughout the city at once, which would be ideal. I would love that. How much safer would the city be? But let's start with one north-south and one east-west and go from there. And if we can get that to happen this fall, I think that would be a major success. Fremont is probably our only other city that has taken that equivalent of a step forward in creating safe bikeways as this would be for San Leandro. I think Oakland's done some good things and Berkeley has certainly done some good things. Incremental this and then that and then another thing. Whereas this would be San Leandro saying, we're going to do these two streets. Each one is probably three miles, four miles. So it'd be a total of five, six miles of protected bikeways. That's a lot to do with one project. And you think that'll be in the ground by this fall? No, 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 no. That'll be approved by city council this fall. Sorry. They don't have the funding to go do it yet. They're going to have to go after the funding to get it done. Okay. With that, I'm going to go cry now because I just work from a position that all cities should have a network of no slow car and protected bike lane streets in their city yesterday. And so anything short of that is tough to hear and to think that it might be approved in the fall, not in the ground is plants burning. You know, yeah, yeah. people are Stacey, dying. Let, let me ask you, San Francisco has installed lots of bikeways during the pandemic in the south of Market area. Do you have any feedback on how that went and how that's going in that area of town? Not fast enough. Yeah, there's some improvement, but it's all so overdue as it is. We do not have a network of connected, protected streets and everything is just car, 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 car. And the whole idea that we have to have a meeting and ask people about their feelings about losing the status quo when it's our lives on the line, it's the health of our city, it's the health of people, it's the climate in a transit first city that is trying to reach vision zero and has less than two years to do it and has only watched the number of deaths go up and to the right, uh, it seems kind of silly to keep catering to cars. But I can't blame them. Virtually every city is like that. Yeah. As a country, we're not there yet to put mandates on cities. You need to be more walkable. You need to be more bikeable. One thing we've done in the Bay Area or in the state of California is that you will have more housing and you will zone for more housing and you legally cannot not zone for more housing. We've done that because housing is enough of a crisis that it takes mandates to deal with it. But unsafe streets, we're not there yet. We still don't feel like we need to mandate safe streets because it impacts drivers and cars. And it's frustrating that that's our reality. It frustrates advocates like us, that it's still an option, particularly making a street safe for bicycling. It's still an option. It's an open question, but it's almost equally an open question. Should the street be safe to walk across? because it would impact cars if we made it safe to walk across. What is it going to take for us to get there? I don't know. I don't have that answer. Is there going to be a climate crisis? Is it going to be gas going to $10 a gallon? Is it going to be automated something, technology? We're just not there yet. It's still an open question. Do we like safe streets or not? 
Okay. Well, thank you. I can't wait to send this to our international friends and let them hear these words of where we are in America, whether it's safe for us to be able to walk and bike on our streets. That'll probably get some good play in Europe. And around the world, I'm sure, where lots of cities are becoming more walkable and parts of the U.S. are becoming more walkable, for sure. But here, at least, everyone is a battle. Thank you so much, Dave Campbell and Stacey Randecker, for this Cross Bay Conference. (laughs) Happy to join. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Nick. Okay, I'm going to go cry now. Thanks, Stacey. Good to meet you. (laughs) Nice to meet you too, Dave. You're listening to Bike Talk. That was Dave Campbell of Bike East Bay and Stacey Randecker. Now, Jill Locantore, Executive Director of Denver Streets Partnership on bike infrastructure and people-friendly streets in Denver, Colorado. We have the perfect weather for biking. We like to say we have 300 days of sunshine per year. I don't know if there's actually any scientific basis to that, but it definitely (laughs) feels like that when you live here. It's very sunny. You know, we do get rain and snow, but it only lasts for a little while and then the sun comes back out. Um, And Denver is actually a pretty flat city, even though we are at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. um, The city itself is in the plains. Um, So weather and topography wise, Denver is a great place to bike. Uh, but we don't have the best bike infrastructure yet. So that's the biggest challenge. And that's your job, one of your jobs. Exactly. We're advocating for people-friendly streets, which means streets that accommodate walking and biking and transit and just hanging out because streets are public spaces and we should all be safe and comfortable in those spaces. What's the etymology of people-friendly? Because there was like livable streets and other terms, but I, I'm, I feel like I'm hearing people friendly now. Yeah. You know, the Denver streets partnership started as a coalition of different groups that were advocating for specific modes. Um, so previously I was with walk Denver. We advocated for walking bike. Denver advocated for biking. We had the transit Alliance that advocated for transit, but at the end of the day, really what we care about are the people who live here in Denver and supporting their health and well-being and livability by designing our transportation system around people, not around cars. Um, And so our fundamental belief is that people and that human dignity should be the guiding principle when we're thinking about how to design our streets. And it's not necessarily about bikes versus pedestrians versus cars. We're all just people. One of the things you're working on towards more people-friendly streets is this ballot measure for a couple of sidewalks? Not just a couple of sidewalks, <laughs> sidewalks citywide. Uh, so in Denver, like a lot of cities across the country, particularly in the West, um, for decades, the city's policies have been that sidewalks are the responsibility of the adjacent private property owner to build the sidewalk in the first place and to maintain it when it needs repairs over time. Um, which is kind of the equivalent of like you being responsible for filling the potholes or repaving the street in front of your house. It's not a great way to manage public infrastructure. Um, And so as a result of these policies, 40% of Denver's streets currently don't have any sidewalk at all or a sidewalk that's too skinny for a person in a wheelchair or a parent with a stroller or two people walking side by side. And some untold number on top of that are in serious disrepair and present a safety hazard. Um, So our initiative that we just qualified for the November ballot here in Denver um, would 
remove the responsibility for sidewalks from the adjacent property owner and put it squarely on the city, just like the city maintains our streets and our storm sewers and other basic infrastructure. And it would fund the construction and repair of the city's sidewalks across the entire city through a modest property fee um, that would enable the build out of the complete network within nine years, as opposed to 400 years, which is the current schedule that we're on. What? <laughs> that is actually the schedule. Yeah. So the city itself estimated what it would cost to build out the complete sidewalk network. Um, and thanks to our advocacy, they did start spending a tiny amount of money building new sidewalks here and there, um, about two to $3 million per year. Um, which because they're building sidewalks only, you know, one piece at a time, it's very cost inefficient. Um, so they aren't able to build a lot with that small amount of funding. And the city's own estimate is at that funding level, it would take 400 years before we would have a complete sidewalk <laughs> oh network. God. I don't even know what the earth is going to look like 400 years from now. Right. So I'm really excited about the possibility of having a complete sidewalk network within my lifetime. I think we would have wings by 400 years from now. <laughs> I don't know if humans are still going to be here, right? We may yeah. have worked ourselves out of existence. I think it's that level of planning, which is possibly squeezing us out of existence. So, and then you have a pop-up marketplace. Uh, you, you will have done it by the time this airs. Yes. Tomorrow is the... Uh, Let's see, it's going to be the third in the series of five uh, pop-up international marketplaces that we are doing with community partners in Southwest Denver. Um, Southwest Denver is the one of the parts of Denver that really suffered the history of redlining and racial discrimination. It historically has been very underinvested in, um, but it's this amazing multicultural part of the city with immigrants from all over the world, tons of different languages spoken. Um, and lots of great food and art that reflects that culture. Um, so we've been partnering with folks on that side of the town to activate some of the underutilized areas like streets and parking lots. Um, and the event tomorrow is underneath a viaduct, an elevated portion of a, of a local highway, which normally is very desolate and barren. Um, but for one day, we're gonna be activating it with food and art and music. Um, and having a big party celebrating Southwest Denver. Pop-ups are a thing you've used before. Yes, we like to do uh, demonstration projects because it's really hard for people to imagine our streets and public spaces functioning or looking differently than they do today. Um, you know, if you've lived most of your life in a car-centric city, it, it can be hard to understand what would the city look like if we actually prioritized people and other ways of getting around besides driving. Um, but infrastructure projects take a really long time. So we like to do quick pop-up demonstrations where just for one day or a weekend, you know, we temporarily redesign a space and allow people to interact with it and understand wow, look at what's possible if we just make extra space for people and deprioritize de cars a bit. Yeah, on a couple of levels. One is here is the change that we want. And the other is here's how fast it could happen. Exactly. You know, at the end of the day, a lot of these changes that we're talking about really just take political will and clear priorities about how do we want to use our streets and our public space in our cities. 
you know, a great example was during the pandemic when a lot of cities, including Denver, decided, you know what, we're going to repurpose some of our streets as open streets or shared streets. They were called different things around the country, but put up barricades and said, we're going to limit vehicular access here and we're going to allow people to walk and bike in the middle of the street. Um, that didn't require a huge investment of construction. It was literally just a statement of priorities that overnight turned those streets into different places. We talked to Dave Campbell of Bike East Bay about a pop-up they did in San Leandro. They used uh, certain kinds of tape and um, roofing materials that they could reuse. I don't know what kind of materials you use for your pop-ups, but... We have used roofing paper as well. They make for excellent pop-up crosswalks because you can buy these rolls of black roofing paper and then you can paint on it like a traditional zebra-stripe crosswalk or we've done decorative crosswalks with flowers and you just roll it out across the street and there's heavy-duty tape that attaches to asphalt and for a day you can have a crosswalk and then you can roll it up and go and use it somewhere else. I'm asking Dave and Bike East Bay for a kind of a blueprint for some of their pop-ups so people can replicate them. Do you think that you could also make your materials kind of an open source design? Absolutely. And there already are some great resources out there. Um, Better Block uh, is the organization that really kind of spearheaded these tactical urbanism type projects in the U.S. And they have an online resource called Wikiblock. Um, where they have all these templates for furniture, basically street furniture that you can build um, using a computerized saw out of inexpensive plywood or similar materials um, to create. They're almost like little jigsaw puzzles that you can you know, put together very quickly to form a bench or a table or a bulb out or a pedestrian refuge and have it in place for the day and then take it apart, store the pieces flat in a storage unit. So we've built up a a whole library of supplies like that um, so that we can show up in a community and transform a street for the day. Well, thank you for that resource, Joe. A quick build is different from a pop-up or is it similar? It's similar in concept. I mean, I would use quick build to refer to projects that the city actually does um, that are intended not just for a day, but to be in place for months or even years um, but can quickly transform the, the functionality of the street. And, you know, the best example of that is just plastic bollards. Um, Denver has been doing a better and better job of using those to delineate space for pedestrians and bicyclists. So using plastic bollards to extend the curb without actually having to do the work of concrete and rearranging the storm gutter. But just with plastic bollards, you can extend the curb that shortens the crossing distance for pedestrians, slows down turning vehicles. Again, you can use plastic bollards to line a bike lane and create a little bit of a buffer between the bike lane and the street. Um, You know, it's not the ideal solution. They're not as strong as, say, you know, an actual concrete curb or like a concrete planter between the, the bike lane and the street. Um, And so ideally, we'd like to see those treatments upgraded over time, but they are something that can be put out very quickly, inexpensively in a lot of different locations across the city um, and really starting to transform how those streets function as we work on those longer term, more permanent changes. Yeah, that's a good description. Thanks. And you have another event coming up, Parking Day. Yes, this is an international event uh, that's been going on for years. I believe it started in San Francisco, actually. Um, And the idea is parking spaces, 
just like the street as a whole, are public. Um, and storing cars in those spaces is not necessarily the best way that we could use them. Um, so what if we took over you know, one parking space at a time and repurposed it by turning it into a little parklet um, or a, another type of public space that people could hang out in? Um, so this is our second year of hosting Parking Day. We did it in 2019. And then the pandemic kind of put a crimp on things for a while, but now we're reviving it again. Um, we are taking over three full blocks in downtown Denver. Uh, we are hosting our own flagship parklet, but then we're inviting community members to each host their own parklet and actually making it a design competition um, so people can win awards for the best parklet in different categories, like the most artistic parklet or the most lush greenery in the parklet or the most fun and interactive parklet. That sounds amazing. And you've done this before? Yes, we did do it in 2019. So you're blowing people's minds pretty re <laughs> regularly? I'm, we're expanding people's imaginations about what's possible. Yeah, that's a better way of saying it. And you have had some thoughts you've expressed online recently about Denver's bikeways not being that impressive. Yeah. So in 2018, our mayor, uh, Michael Hancock, made a commitment to build out 125 miles of bike lanes over the next five years, um, which was really exciting uh, because, you know, it's not like Denver didn't have bike lanes or wasn't building them, but it was doing so pretty slowly, um, you know, a few miles of bike lanes per year across a big city like Denver, that's, you know, a pretty incomplete network. So we were very excited when he announced that he was gonna rapidly excel, ac accelerate the build out of the bike network. And also this commitment that these would be what the city calls high comfort bike lanes, meaning they're comfortable for not just your, you know, stereotypical guy in spandex, but for older adults and family with kids and people who are just new to learning how to ride a bike. Um, so what we were expecting was something a little bit more than your traditional painted bike lane. Um, but in the end, <laughs> that's a lot of what we've gotten uh, is just traditional painted bike lanes. Um, and the city's also been experimenting uh, with this new concept that they call a neighborhood bikeway, which in theory, I'm totally on board with. Um, the idea is when you're on a, a busy street with lots of traffic, you, you definitely want to keep bikes separate from drivers with not only a painted bike lane, but ideally a buffered bike lane with some kind of vertical separation between the, the cars and the bikes. But on slower neighborhood streets, ideally you would have low enough speeds and volumes of car traffic that it's actually totally comfortable for everybody to be mixing together in the street. And you don't have to have you know, the space clearly segregated into that's yours and this is mine. Basically you're prioritizing pedestrians and bicyclists and cars are allowed in there as guests, but they have to defer to everybody else in the street. I love that concept. City's not been doing such a great job of actually implementing it. Um, you know, in some places, they literally just throw down a sharrow on the street, you know, a painted marking that indicates that bicyclists are allowed to be in the street and a sign on the side of the road that says, this is a neighborhood bikeway. Um, but that doesn't do a whole lot to actually ensure that cars are going slow, treating, you know, bicyclists and pedestrians with utmost respect. And so it just fails to live up to the promise of a high comfort facility that parents would be comfortable letting their five-year-old kid learn how to ride a bike on. Yeah, because it, paint is not enough. Comfort is an interesting 
term. There's increasing levels of comfort from paint to plastic bollards to concrete. Exactly. And it's it's subjective. Data is great. I am a strong proponent of using data to inform planning. And, you know, the city is pretty good at actually trying to measure vehicular volumes and speeds. But at the end of the day, whether you feel comfortable on a street or not is a very personal reaction to the street. <laughs> and what we've seen is that people do not feel comfortable on these streets that, that the city is labeling as high comfort. And no matter what their numbers are that tells them it should feel comfortable, we need to listen to the community that's saying they don't feel comfortable. How's Vision Zero going? Uh, not too well in Denver. We did make the very important step as a city of embracing Vision Zero. Again, our mayor, Michael Hancock, in 2017, committed to Vision Zero and the goal of eliminating traffic fatalities. You know, just saying that zero traffic fatalities is the right number is a very important step. Um, And the city also set a goal of doing eliminating traffic fatalities by 2030. Um, But the bad news is, is we are nowhere near uh, working our way towards that goal. Traffic fatalities have actually been going up. Uh, Last year, there were a total of 84 people who were killed just trying to get around Denver streets, which is the highest number since we committed to Vision Zero in 2017. Um, And this year we're up to, I I think now 56. Um, You know, they just keep happening. There was another pedestrian fatality just yesterday or the day before. Um, and so we are on track to, again, hit those, those record highs. So we have the intention in place, um, but we are not executing the types of projects that will actually help us get there. And, and then you also work on transit. We do. And actually, we think transit is really the missing piece um, that we need to tackle in order to get to Vision Zero for a number of reasons. Um, if you look at the most deadly streets in Denver, the high injury network where the vast majority of the traffic fatalities happen, Those are not surprisingly major arterial streets um, that are both state highways and major transit corridors. Um, Today, they function primarily as highways to move as many cars as fast as possible. Um, They do get congested and the buses get stuck in the congestion with everybody else. And that means the buses are slow and unreliable. Um, But if we start thinking about how do we transform those streets from highways into actually human-centered places that move people safely and efficiently, we start talking about things like dedicated bus lanes that allow the buses to move quickly down the corridor, but also reclaim some of that space from cars. So you're reducing the total number of travel lanes um, and you're narrowing the width of the street. And that makes it safer for everybody. In fact, the city just did some modeling for one of the proposed bus rapid transit lines um, on Colfax again. I mentioned Colfax previously. That's where we're doing the the night market, the pop-up marketplace. Um, There's a proposal to reduce that from four lanes to two lanes of traffic with the remainder being a dedicated busway. And their own modeling shows that will reduce the number of crashes happening on the corridor and the number of fatalities happening on that corridor. So they go hand in hand. And the other piece too is virtually every single traffic fatality is a person driving a car hitting another human being. Cars are just the most deadly way to get around a city. And so the more we actually create viable alternatives like transit and people start using those alternatives, the fewer cars we have on the street, the fewer people that will be dying on our streets. 
There you go. There's more. I'm sure that you could talk about probably forever, infinitely. <laughs> um, you know, our streets are so fundamental to our life and our city. They intersect every aspect of our lives. So there is an infinite number of ways that we can talk about making our streets better. Thank you, Jill Locantore, Executive Director of the Denver Streets Partnership for talking with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. That was Jill Cantore of Denver Streets Partnership. And that was Bike Talk. Thanks, Kevin Burton, for editing. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, catch yourself a bike.